It's good to be with you this morning. I understand the volume might be a little louder than normal, so I'm not trying to shout at you, um, so, but I won't have to raise my voice either. So please uh, have grace for that. Appreciate it. Boy, the congregation got cut in half when the kids left, didn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a glorious thing it is to have so many wonderful children in here. Our sermon text this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And I've entitled it, Live Like Citizens of Heaven. Live Like Citizens of Heaven. You know, both Diane and I have uh, mothers who immigrated to the United States. Diane's mother grew up as a Dutch citizen in Indonesia, which was a Dutch colony at the time prior to World War II. And my mother grew up as an English citizen uh, up until she got married at age 25. And during the war, and then she moved over here uh, after she married my dad. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this, but also a side note, uh, was that we did a questionnaire in our premarital counseling, and we had to, one of the questions was, what do you have in common? And so, of course, we we're both Christians, but the only other thing that either one of us could fill out, and both of us filled out the same thing, was that we both were children of immigrant mothers. So that was the only other thing we had in common. Not off to an auspicious start, shall we say, but, um, but everything got better after that. <laughs> we got more and more things in common. But anyway, uh, as they both came to this country and became citizens of the United States, they had to conduct themselves in a way that was different than they did growing up. So it was very strange in some ways. Uh, Diane's mother had to understand what it meant to live in a way that was different than was under the D Dutch system of um, laws and, and things. And so my mother had to do the same thing. So for instance, my mother had to learn how to drive on the right side of the road and understand the new signs that she was encountering. Uh, Diane's mother had to begin to use English as her primary language rather than Dutch. And she'd been taught some English in the school so it wasn't totally foreign to her, but uh, now is her primary language. It's what she spoke all the time just to get around in this country. Um, and so they also had to study what was the U.S. Constitution all about? What were the political setups and who was in office and why and what a president was like versus a premier or, or maybe a king? And so all these things were different and they had to be changed. They had to learn how to obey the rules and the regulations of the new country. So in our sermon text, Paul was instructing the Philippian Christians who were under Roman rule, even though Philippi wasn't in Rome or around Rome, they were still under the governance of Rome, even though they were in Macedonia, northern Greece. And so they had to understand what it would mean to go from being citizens of Rome then to be citizens of this new kingdom, citizens of heaven. And so they need to learn how to live their lives under the new king, King Jesus, not the emperor anymore of Rome. That's strange because it was a harsh rule under the Roman emperors. They uh, really crashed down on people who were not citizens of Rome and it was very, very difficult life. And so they had to learn how to live their lives in a manner that was worthy of the gospel is what Paul says. Worthy of the gospel, have to live out our lives that way. And so 
the same principle applies to us this morning. We have a new king. We have Jesus. He's Lord and Savior, right? We confess that. We say that. We have to ask ourselves, is that really true seven days a week? Is that really how we're living out our daily life? And so the uh, kingdom of heaven has a king, King Jesus. And we're the ones that are supposed to be living under that kingship, obeying the word of God so all things would go well with us. And then uh, we are to live out within the society we're in the best we can under the laws of the United States, or in their case, under the laws of Rome, except where it varies from the word of God. So wherever the word of God is different than what the ruler of the Roman Empire or the rulers of this country are, are saying, then that's where the Christians cannot abide by that. We've got to submit to our supreme king who is Jesus. And so as we look at this, then we are to live like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to look at that and see what that means here as we go through this passage. But one thing I need to let you know, this is a question I often get over the years. So what's the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Well, basically they're the same thing. It depends who the readers are that are receiving the particular passage. So we're, you weren't allowed to use uh, Jehovah and uh, or, you know, in, in terms of speaking to Jewish people, then they would say kingdom of heaven. And so this is, uh, this is the difference. So when you're writing to Gentiles, it's okay to say the kingdom of God. Okay, would you please stand as we read the word of God? This is Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign for them that their destruction, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted in you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the instructions in it. We pray for hearts that are softened, that are easily taught. We pray that uh, you would help us to uh, understand what it is that your spirit is bringing to our attention uh, this morning, the things that you want to speak to us, because you're alive and you're powerful, and yet it's what uh, your spirit does. It opens up our hearts to hear the things you want us to speak into them. And so grow an awareness of how to please you, how to serve you, how to delight in you, and also grow in Christ's likeness. We praise you and thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. So let's look at the first sermon point. What does it mean to live like citizens of heaven? So the first thing you're probably wondering is, I don't see the word citizen up there anywhere. <laughs> 
So where, does, where, does, where do you get this word citizen from? So verse 27 says, only let your manner of life be worthy. This is a phrase in Greek, which is only one word. And that word really refers to citizenship. So that means verse 27 can be translated only let your citizenship be worthy. So Paul was saying, you are citizens of heaven, so conduct yourselves as worthy citizens of heaven. And so what does worthy mean? Kind of one of those, sounds like a great word, but what does it actually mean? So what it's really saying is that you're to live day by day. So we don't come in here and get all religious and act, you know, like Christians just on Sundays. This is every day, all day, seven days a week. So this is a way that we're handling ourselves, a way that we're walking with the Lord. And so we're to walk in a way that's worthy of this position as a child of God and fellow heir of all that Jesus has received. And so we're in Christ now. So that it's kind of hard sometimes. It's a great thought, and we can understand it intellectually. What does it mean is I'm walking around every single day and I'm in Christ? I don't feel in Christ. You can't see me in Christ. I can't smell what it means to be in Christ. But we are in Christ. We're the body of Christ. We're the church. And so this is important for us to understand as we're walking in a manner worthy that this is how we can do that. We can, we can only do this because we're in Christ. It's something that God has done. God has purposed uh, to put us in Christ. And so this is an amazing thing because when we acknowledge that Christ is the king and the head of the body, then he's directing that body. And that's inclusive of what's in the body of Christ, being in Christ. And so it's because Christ has done all these things that we can walk in a manner that's worthy. And so we're to act and live then in a manner that's worthy every single day, every minute of every day. And so as we, as we do that, then Jesus has taught us that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we love our neighbors ourselves. This is the great command, right? So if we're walking in a, manny, in a manner that's worthy, then that means we're walking in a way that's love. This is how the whole kingdom of heaven operates. Its main thing is love. And so this is how we should be doing things every single day, loving God, obeying God, which is tied together in John 15. Jesus said that you need to obey God the way I've obeyed God and that uh, when you do that, that you're showing your love for God. And so this is true of us today. So as we worthily live things out, then we are to love well. And so when the world sees us as Holy Cross, seven days a week, we're sometimes like a thousand lights out there in the community, right? Or maybe 200, but wherever it was that uh, Kent told us the numbers were, were that number out in the community every single day. And so if we're walking as those who are walking in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ, then that means we'd be loving everybody. And we all know that's not easy. That's quite a challenge, as a matter of fact. It doesn't say just the Christians. That means the world too. 
Jesus loved us when we were the world. He laid his life down for us when we were the world. We were his enemies. And so there should be a difference then between a gospel-centered church full of people who are walking in a manner that's worthy than from what the world is like. Because they should be able to see in us what it means to really love one another. So the Roman citizens that were in Philippi would have seen something dramatically different in the church at Philippi because how they loved one another was very, very different than how the Roman citizens were exercising their harsh laws where there was no real love except when it benefited them. And that meant it wasn't really true love. It was just a way to get their way and to manipulate people. So what did Paul mean by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, God created, most of you know this, God created mankind to be in perfect loving relationship with him. Man was supposed to live forever in perfect relationship with the Lord. And God warned Adam before chapter 3, chapter 2 of Genesis, he warned him. He said, you know what? I'm making a covenant with you. This is a, what we call a covenant of works. You're not supposed to eat that fruit from that tree over there in the middle of the garden. If you do, you'll surely die. So Adam knew about that, and Eve knew about that. So Adam was man's first representative, and that's very important that we see that he was a representative for all of man. And so we all know that he disobeyed, and he ate the forbidden fruit. And so he fell, and he broke the covenant with God. So he could have chosen not to do that, but he did. And so then he was dead in his trespasses and his sins. He had no spiritual understanding or life, and he justly deserved God's holy wrath. So God was not surprised by that. He wasn't taken back, said, oh my goodness, my plan's all messed up, and now I'm just gonna have to wipe out everything and start over. It's not what he did said, even though they've done such a foolish and sinful thing, I've got a plan that's still in place. This hasn't altered my plan at all. And isn't that reassuring for us today when we understand we sin? God's not going to wipe us out. There's a gospel that's in place. And so what God had done as he had put a plan in place with his son, Jesus, before the foundation of the earth, before it was even created. He'd already understood that this is probably going to happen. And so in that covenant of grace with Jesus, then Jesus had already agreed to leave heaven, take on the flesh of a man, live the life that was in obedience to the word of God, and he would then successfully become man's second representative. So that's one of the other names in the New Testament for, for Jesus is the second Adam. So you have the first Adam, then you have the second Adam. And so as he did that, then he would, he would qualify to go to the cross because he was perfect and without sin. But he also 
would atone for our sins. That means he would die in our place. So this is a fabulous covenant of grace that we're looking at. So Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 explains this to us. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. There it is again. When you start seeing in Christ in the Bible, it's like it's everywhere. It's, it's that important. Paul talks about it constantly. So in Christ with every spiritual blessing, not one or two, every spiritual blessing, every single one. Let that sink in just a little bit more. Nothing's left out. You're getting part of everything. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So everything that Christ has gained, you're going to be gaining part of that. Even as he chose us in him or in Christ before the foundation of the world. You were chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ. Brian was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Isn't that remarkable? That's incredible to think about. And so this is the good news that we have. This is great news. This is why when we get our focus off of ourselves and back upon Christ, these are the things that we're going to be heading towards. This is what we're going to be gaining. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. All by grace. All by grace. And so, Jesus was the only one who was worthy. There is no other worthy person. Only Jesus Christ. And that's why when we're in him, that's what qualifies us to gain all those treasures that are in heaven. Well, how do we get there? Well, God did that too. We didn't decide, well, I think I'd like the sound of that and I'd like to get all those treasures so I'm going to become a Christian and I'm going to atone for my own sins. That's not what happened. All of this is by grace, this covenant of grace that God has arranged since before the foundation of the world. And so the great exchange took place. We come with our filthy rags and we hand those to Jesus. All those sinful things that we've done. We hand them over to him, and what does he give us back? His perfection, his righteousness. Wow. The most unjust thing in the history of the world takes place. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. And he died the death that we deserve to die. That's what happened. How can we not have our hearts exploding right now in thanksgiving and praise of him? Just an amazing thing that's taken place. So we share in all those treasures, those heavenly treasures, as Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 told us. We're going to experience perfect love and eternity. We're going to experience eternal peace. After Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, the Father gave him control of the Holy Spirit. 
And so what did Jesus do with that? So he turns around, takes the Holy Spirit, and he pours that spirit at Pentecost out into the church, into the body of Christ. So every time you become a believer, someone becomes a believer, you're being baptized into the already existing body of Christ that's been there since Pentecost. That's where the Holy Spirit dwells. That's exciting. That happens when we get saved. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to ask for it. And of course, Jesus, as he baptized the believers with the Holy Spirit, he was fulfilling Acts 1.5 and Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26, 27. So it's a fulfillment of what was already promised in the Old Testament. It's coming to pass. It's part of the covenant of grace. This is what you're walking in today. It's what I'm walking in today. The promises can't be changed or taken away. It's been permanently put in place. And so as the kingdom of heaven is already established here on the earth, we also look forward to something more. This isn't the end of it. It doesn't end with just our salvation. And so many people think, well, now I'm saved. Okay, that's it. But there's more, and this is what, you know, I really want to draw your attention to. That Jesus is also, when he returns, going to bring judgment. And so every pain, every upset that you've had, he's going to make it right. And we've all experienced pain in a variety of different ways. But the beauty is he's going to make everything right. And that's so hard to think that that's going to happen. Because it looks like so many people are getting away with all kinds of sin all the time, doesn't it? But this is what Matthew 13, verses 40 through 43 say. And this is a very, I want you to listen closely to what Jesus says here. This is one of like six of the things the kingdom is like in Matthew 13. But think about what actually happens and when it happens. It says, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them in the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Jesus said, all mankind's going to live forever. Did you hear that? So what's going to happen to those who are not believers? They're going to be cast into hell. So everybody's going to live forever. Some are going to live in the kingdom of heaven, and some are going to live in the kingdom of hell. And did you see the way in which it's going to happen? It's usually opposite. We've all seen these books and things about you know, Jesus return, and, um, and it's always, well, we're going to be raised up in the air. That's not how it happens. He's going to send his angels, and what are they going to do? He's going to gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. So we're, we're not going to be taken up. We're going to remain. The evil ones, the unbelievers, are the ones that are going to be taken up. Sort of flips sometimes our thinking about what's going to happen. Now, we don't know all the details, 
but it's going to be different than what's often portrayed out there is what's going to happen when he comes back. So when that all takes place and he makes all things right, brings justice and he wipes away every tear, that's when the gospel is going to be complete. The heavenly city of Jerusalem is going to come down and take up residence on the earth. It's going to be amazing. If you, if you translate the numbers in, in your Bibles, if you take the literal numbers, you're going to have a kingdom of heaven that's going to be like 1,400 miles in a cube. Now, we don't know if those are representative numbers, but the point is, or literal, what is 1,400 miles? That's from where we are today, like halfway across the United States. This is one city. And it's going to be 1,400 miles high. For those who have flown in airplanes, you know, you might fly at 30,000 feet, something like that. That's not really high, right? Well, that's like six miles. We're talking 1,400 miles. So there's going to be plenty of room for all the Christians in heaven, okay? And there's going to be a finite number, and then God's going to finish everything, and the judgment's going to happen, and there won't be any more sin in us or amongst us in heaven ever. And so this is our assurance that we saw in verse 6 already. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He's going to do all that. That's why he's worthy of our worship. And so we get our eyes off of ourselves, off of our problems, and onto him. Could anything be any better? We look forward to that time. So this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So this is glorious and wonderful. So now let's look at our second point in our outline, the unity of the Spirit. So how are the Philippians to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Well, in two ways, really. One is inwardly and the other is outwardly. So how does that apply to us then as we're thinking about this? Paul said to stand firm in one spirit and with one mind. Paul wrote the same thing in Ephesians 4.3. He says, be eager, desire deeply, right? To maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So Holy Cross then is to be united in what we believe and how we think and act. So outwardly, the reason Paul said to stand firm together was because he knew that they would be attacked for their belief in the gospel. I mean, we see it all over the place. This last week, there was some elementary person on the board of um, somewhere in, Cal in um, Arizona, and she was just saying how the Bible's so bad, how Christians are, are horrible, they're not accepting, basically coming against the very tenets of what we believe. These things are rising. There are people out there that hate Jesus. And so there's going to be continued persecution at some level. And Paul knew that because he'd experienced that. That's what he says here, right? And he continues to experience it because he's in jail right now as he writes his letter. And so they're to remain unified when these attacks come. And so we need one another 
So the boldest witnesses in here will receive probably the most persecution. And maybe not like Paul, but it might be, you might lose friends. When Diane became a Christian in college at UVA, she became a Christian the first year. When she went back the second year, she lost all of her friends. It was very, very difficult. Now, there wasn't persecution, but there was rejection. Sometimes that's really hard. So was she going to keep on following Christ as a new young believer, or was she going to retreat and say, well, this doesn't look like it's working out very well. I think I'm just going to reject Jesus. So there's the outward then that's going to attack. And so we need to be together in helping one another when that happens. Then inwardly, how are they to be unified? Well, we all know that within each one of us is a mighty battle taking place. It's a sin nature versus the Holy Spirit. We can read about it in Galatians 5. So it all determines that whatever moment in the day it is, which is going to control what you do. So the desires are powerful. The sinful desires are powerful. And so this is, this is the inward part. So how do we stand firm then when the inward battle is taking place? Well, first of all, we need to know that all of us are struggling with this same battle. There's nobody in here that doesn't have this battle. There's nobody that isn't being tempted by something that's sinful. Every day, all day long, it's constant. But also we have the Holy Spirit living within us when we repent and we turn to Christ. And the Holy Spirit works within us and helps us to love and stay strong. And so it's a beautiful thing to know that we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so that's our trust that he's going to win out. God is bigger than our sin. His grace is greater than our sin. And so we've been challenged then with our own hearts. And that's the part we sometimes we have the hardest part seeing. It's easy to see the attacks from the outward. But it's not as easy to see what I'm taking on inside, to see the battle that's raging there. Why am I not following Christ the way I should be? We don't like to look inward a whole lot. So it's hard that we need each other. And so we can think about then what God has done when this takes place. We've got to be reminded what the Holy Spirit has done. So he's regenerated us. Titus 3.5, right? We've got a fullness of divine power because of that. We've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. These are things that God has done and prepared us and, and now encourages us to use the things that are within us to turn away in repentance, to re return to Christ and ask him to help us. And so we're to stand firm when we want to rebel against God. And so we need each other. There's always that temptation to play God in each one of us. Same thing Adam did. So Romans 8.11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the Holy Spirit, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So there it is. The Holy Spirit is greater than our own sin natures. And so, for example, 
We're all, we did it this morning. We're all to pray the Lord's Prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There it is. Kingdom, prayer, his will, not my will. All those things are incorporated in just that short sentence that's in the Lord's Prayer. And so when we pray that, when we pray your kingdom come and your will be done rather than mine, then we're moving into a unity of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit wants. And so when we pray that rationally, then what we're saying is we're all desiring the same thing, to be of one mind. And so we're living for Christ's glory as we do that, as our calling and chief end, and not for our own glory. And that brings us to our third point. Are we striving together to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, like it says in verse 27? Striving together. Striving. Three persons of the Trinity are all united. And they're all united in striving to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. It's an ongoing process. There's absolutely no difference of anything. Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. The Holy Spirit perfectly obeys Christ all the time. 2 Corinthians 3, we see that the Lord is the Spirit. In other words, Jesus and the Spirit, you get one, you get the other. So there's just absolutely no difference of anything in terms of what the, what the Trinity is trying to do. Absolute unity, complete. And so the church is supposed to function the same way. We're supposed to function that same way. So what Paul is saying is that what he's trying to emphasize is that we're supposed to be advancing the gospel together. This is not a one-man show. This is not a pastor. It includes the pastor, but it's together. The whole church is on the same page, just like the Trinity. All three persons in the Trinity are on the same page. Everyone has a part to play. You have purposely been brought into this church by the Lord and his sovereignty with your gifts to build up the body of Christ here and also to advance the gospel out into the community to demonstrate how you're going to love one another and love God as one. We're all on the same team. And so you need to be thinking about, many of you are using your gifts, but there's some that are probably wondering, what are my gifts? (laughs) Others are saying, well, I don't know. Um, God hasn't called me to do this, and you feel a little nervous, maybe not accepted, maybe a little, you know, a, a capital I introvert, you know, just harder, understand that. So as that takes place, then we also need to know that, for instance, King David wrote these words in Psalm 133.1. He said, uh, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Key words, good and pleasant. You know, we tend to not use our gifts sometimes for whatever given reason. But do you know you're cutting off goodness and pleasure if you're doing that from yourself? You're actually hurting yourself. Now, it might make you nervous to step out and use your gifts at times. But when you're working together to advance the gospel, beautiful things start happening and you experience joy and pleasantness in ways that you wouldn't experience otherwise. And I think we all want that, right? 
So today Jesus wants this church to be one spirit, one mind, striving side by side and advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the mission. That's the commission. Whatever word you would like to use. This is what Paul's talking about. And so they're of one mind, being taught to be one mind, seeking first the kingdom of God. But it says here that you must strive. Strive? Why does he use that word? Another word would be contend, right? Because there's a battle going on. We have to contend for unity. Because we have a sin nature, then we can mess up the unity of the whole church. If you have a, like right now, March Madness is going on, right? All it takes is one player on any team who loses sight of what the team is supposed to be doing to destroy the whole team. When, when the winners are finally crowned at the end of March Madness, they're the ones that played best as a team and not as individuals. When they're playing for individuality, they're playing for their glory. When they're playing as a team, they're playing, playing for the team's glory. So the same idea is here as a church. So what happens when your selfish desires rise up and you say, I'm going to play God, I'm going to determine when I'm going to use my gifts or if I'm going to use my gifts, and you're playing for your glory. You're not playing for Christ's glory. And so the beauty is that we can take these types of things as we see them before the throne of grace and ask for grace in our time of need and ask God to help us. Lord, I'm not using my gifts or maybe I'm scared to use my gifts. Would you help me? Would the power of your spirit work in me? Maybe somebody else will pull alongside you and help you out with that. And so when all these things are happening and the unity is taking place, then you're using your gifts for the glory of Christ. You're using your gifts selflessly, and that matters. It matters for the team. And you're dying to self, and that matters, because that means you're growing in Christ-likeness. And there's going to be a pleasantness. And there's going to be a joy that God will impart to you. That's what Jesus promised us in John 15, 11. When we're obedient, then I will add my joy to you, Jesus said. You can't get that kind of joy on your own. And so a wonderful and joyous thing happens within all of us when we're united, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving, striving side by side for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a team effort, helping one another, encouraging one another. Don't you want the joy for the rest of the church to take place? Yeah, it's no longer about you. You want the joy of other people to increase. I want to use an example right now in how we have to strive for unity at Holy Cross. And this can happen in any kind of situation, but right now this is current for us. And so as everybody knows, there's going to be pastoral search committee voted on on March 12th. And they've all finished submitting their applications. And so all those who have applied are doing it from the purest of reasons, I'm sure. 
they love Holy Cross. And they feel like they're led to put in their application and be part of this process of choosing the new pastor. So I want to say, you know, anybody who's offered up an application, you are to be celebrated, you are to be thanked, we praise God for you, and we thank you that you're going to take your time, your energy that's going to be over and above your normal work week and times. It's going to be also probably expensive in some ways. So we praise God for you. And we're going to pray for you. In fact, you got prayed for this morning. That was wonderful and that's good. So we want a team that in place that's the best one for Holy Cross. But So there are going to be seven members on the team. And I think Kent said there's going to be a, there, we've got 11 ones that are, have applied. So this leads us to the possibility of hurt feelings. Because there's going to be some that are not voted on by the congregation to be part of that committee. So this gives us a possibility of having a little break in our unity. There could be some resentment. Could be different things are rising up as a result of that. We all, you know, at some level there's a rejection and that's hurtful. And there's questions, do people love me? But anyway, the most important thing then as we process through this, how do we maintain our unity in the middle of this is that God has got his sovereign hand on this process. He already knows the ones that he wants on that team. It's our job to vote on the ones that we believe are the ones he wants on the team. And so as we do that, then we're hopefully under the leading and guiding of God. And I would say we are, definitely. So what does that mean? Well, it's going to be a joy for those who are on the team to try and figure out who is the man of God's own choosing. But what about the ones that were not? The ones that were not chosen? I encourage us all to acknowledge God's sovereignty in all this. It's God that's doing the choosing. We're his representatives, if you will, as we vote. The session doesn't have a stranglehold on all this. The congregation is doing the voting. And that's on purpose. And so, you know, we see it in the Bible over and over. You know, God has chosen most of the men in the Bible for their particular things that he wants them to do. When Judas fell, they had to get another disciple, an apostle. So how was that done? Casting lots. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah, God moved through casting lots. So in this case, he's going to move through what? The vote of the congregation. And so that's good. And so after the vote is in, then... Uh, That's when we need to be sensitive to those who have not been voted on the committee. So we need to all know that God's chosen for his reasons, who's gonna be on it and who's not gonna be on it. 
we appreciate the willingness to put yourself at risk and be up for the vote. But know that if you're not on that committee, if you're not chosen, it's because God has something else for you to do that's more important in his eyes. He knows who he's putting in what place and what he wants him to do. You're not being rejected. God still loves you. Jesus still died for you. So sometimes there's things that are more important than being on a pastor search committee. God is still going to bring the man of his own choosing into this church, regardless of who's going to be on that committee, because this congregation is, is God-centered, gospel-centered. This is a great congregation, very healthy. We have to let God decide. I, I'm not God, so I can't choose which one is going to be there. But at the same time, the reality is we are fallen creatures and there might be some, some pain and some hurt. So we need to be praying not only for the application process and who's going to be on it, but we need to start praying this week, right now, for those who are not going to be chosen. That prayer is just as important so we keep unity in this church. Love for one another. We can celebrate. Those who have not been chosen can celebrate with those that have because we acknowledge that this is God's choice and not ours. And if you're not chosen, then the session wants you to know that they want to have you come to them and they can pull alongside you and love you and care for you. You're not going to be condemned because you haven't been voted on the committee and you still, still have your feelings hurt. We understand that. That's part of the inside battle that's going on, isn't it? That sin nature says, well, I want my glory. I don't want God's glory. It's kind of that weak moment when that temptation takes over. This is the way we're all built. And so the session wants to love you and care for you in that, that uh, sense. And... and um, You've got a good session here. You've got a really good session here. And you can trust them with that. God has chosen them too. And a great diaconate as well. <laughs> you are precious in God's sight, whether you're on that committee or not. So may the Lord help us to strive together in unity for the advancement of his will side by side and for his glory. May we live every day like citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Father, these are hard things at times, but this is what goes on, whether it's the pastor search committee or whether it's some other issue that we're looking to have or get. But help us to sort out in our own hearts when we're after our own glory versus your glory. And may we truly have unity at Holy Cross at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.